And it was really enlightening to me, the idea that Colin Woodward has put it forward there that you've got these regions in this country, I think certainly rings true. And to your point, Beth, about sort of the history of both coasts, we celebrate that. And, the, and, and for the left coast, at least, this sort of intersection between El Norte and the coast, the values that we have, the sort of the, the, the history, I think makes for, you know, part of coming back to that healthy competition, a real pursuit to try to figure out how to be as accessible and equitable to the constituencies in the state. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we are sharing the latest in our Now What electoral series, where we use Colin Woodard's regional framework to understand different parts of the country, particularly as we move closer and closer to the midterm elections. Today, we're going to be tackling El Norte and New Amsterdam, a.k.a. Southern California, mainly Los Angeles, and New York City. We are doing that through a conversation with Felipe Fuentes and Assemblywoman Linda Rosenthal, and we can't wait for you to listen. We're also going to share a conversation we had with Ian Crone, host of the very popular podcast Typology and our Outside of Politics, because we're talking about the Enneagram. You know it comes up all the time here at Pantsuit Politics, and we loved this conversation where we talked about the implications for the Enneagram in politics and political conversations. We are bringing you... New episodes through our summer series, and we'll be back in your ears some during our July break, depending on what the House Select Committee investigating mm-hmm, the January mm-hmm. 6th Capitol attack does. So we're holding all of those plans a little bit loosely. But if you find that you're missing our voices in your lives or your ears, we would just love to ask you again to check out our book, Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided about basically everything. We've received, especially since the Supreme Court's decision in the Dobbs case overturning Roe versus Wade, so many questions on how to have difficult conversations that are more necessary than ever in your families and churches and communities and online. We've done our best to answer those questions uh, through our regularly published podcasts, but we would really love for you to sit down with our book because that's where we think we've done our best work on moving those conversations forward. Next up, we'll share our conversation with Felipe Fuentes and Assemblywoman Linda Rosenthal. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. 
Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. When we started this series, we wanted to bring greater understanding and depth for all of us to regions of the country where we might not live. Well, that's a little challenging for big cities like New York City and Los Angeles, cities that we many of us have visited, cities that many of us hear reported on all the time, cities that occupy such an outside space in our cultural conversations. And we thought it would be interesting to bring representatives from those two cities together to talk about what is missed in the national narrative and our cultural understanding of these two particular regions of the country. So we are joined today by Felipe Fuentes, who served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council for three years and a member of the California State Assembly for five years. He currently works as a lobbyist, and we would be remiss if we did not mention that we've had the pleasure of spending time in person with Felipe and his wife, Lena. They are wonderful people and supporters of Pantsuit Politics, and we're delighted that he's here. Assemblywoman Linda Rosenthal currently represents District 67, which includes parts of Manhattan's Upper West Side and Hell's Kitchen neighborhoods in the New York State Assembly. She was first elected in 2006, and she was wonderful to talk with in this conversation. So with a lot of gratitude, here is our discussion with Felipe Fuentes and Assemblywoman Linda Rosenthal. Thank you both so much for joining us here at Pantsy Politics. We are thrilled to have you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for inviting us. So we wanted to have you guys both here because the national narrative is often that, you know, the coasts get lumped together. Define and it defines and dominates so much of our conversation in America. And you see that, I think, manifest in a lot of resentment in the political realm. And it occurred to us that even using coasts shrinks down and characterizes two very distinct parts of the country. And so many years of representing your respective communities, L.A. and New York, what do people get wrong about your city when they say things like New York and L.A., like they're one place? And Linda, I'll send that to you first. I mean, I think something people get wrong about New York is that people are hostile, people are mean. uh, That's a big, scary place. And in fact, 
We are a collection of small neighborhoods, sometimes as small as like five blocks can define a neighborhood. Mm. And um, people are actually very caring um, and uh, loving toward each other within those different neighborhoods. And we saw it displayed during COVID where people would go out of their way, risk their own lives, their own health to take care of a neighbor, to deliver food, to um, help someone they never met before. And so I think that's one of the misconceptions about New York in general. Um, And well, LA, I'm sure um, you can come up with your own misconceptions, but um, (laughs) I mean, we think of LA as this, this unfriendly kind of car city where it's a lot of paparazzi, Mm. a lot of Hollywood, a lot of types. And the fact there are real people who live there and not everybody's right. stuck in their car on, on the freeway. But I think the unfriendliness um, moniker to New York is dreadfully wrong. Yeah, I think the assembly mm. members got it right. I mean, for better or for worse, folks think that, you know, Los Angeles is all Hollywood and paparazzi and that we're a little plasticky, you know, in sort of our sort of demeanor. Um, but, you know, one thing that is sort of fun is that, uh, you know, again, for better or for worse, we're always going to be the second largest, right? That's always sort of the, the, <laughs> the second largest city in the country. Um, and uh, for the time being, that's sort of what folks, uh, you know, sort of think. And in some ways, you know, there's a healthy competition, I think, between uh, New York and Los Angeles. I mean, they are both, you know, magnets. It's where people want to be. It's the people are drawn to cities and the culture that comes out of both of those uh, sort of con- constituencies and communities makes for culture. And I think it's one of the sort of things that mm-hmm. uh, we rival a little bit, but but we we celebrate. And I think that's what makes it so exciting. Well, as Kentuckians, we are familiar with stereotypes that caricature <laughs> mm-hmm. where you live and, and what is represented there. So we can relate to at least that piece. You know, you're in places with very different histories that we wanted to talk about for a minute. New York was settled in the 1700s by the Dutch with this huge emphasis on commercialism and multiculturalism. L.A. was settled by Spanish-American empires and where the Dutch and their descendants are largely gone from New York. Hispanic culture is still very prevalent in parts of Southern California, where you have less of an emphasis on commercial success and more on hard work. And we just wondered how you see these histories and cultures shaping your cities, especially politically. And I'd love to start with you, Felipe. Well, listen, I think how you all started this series is is really important, and it was really enlightening to me, the idea that Colin Woodward has put it forward there that you've got these regions in this country, I think certainly rings true. And to your point, Beth, about sort of the history of both coasts, you know, I think that's what, in large part, because we're very democratic, very blue states, we celebrate that. And, the, and, and for the left coast, at least, mm. this, this sort of intersection between El Norte and the coast the values that we have, the sort of the, the the history, I think makes for, you know, part of coming back to that healthy competition, a real pursuit to try to figure out how to be as accessible and equitable to the constituencies in the state. And you see that manifesting in the way sort of the elections are run and how cobalt blue we are. And it's envisioned with, you know, how it is that the state and local government spends money. They do a good job of, of sort of taking care of the things that need to be taken care of but they extend their their help, whether it's increasing access to uh, undocumented, to saying to our neighboring states, 
come here for health services if your state for some reason doesn't want to offer them to, to women as most recently we're experiencing. We have that history and really that pride. And, and it really is, uh, I think, part of why it is that both coasts for that matter are so welcoming to, to people and, and, and to offering help. Well, that's what, you know, Linda, what you to what you said about New York. It strikes me that both New York and L.A. are almost like microcosms of what he's trying to do in his book. Like, really, you could break these cities down into regions by their history and by their populations and by their cultures. And I mean, that's what you that's what you understand, I think, when you can stop saying New York, L.A. and when you can stop saying New York. I mean, what part of New York? <laughs> you know, the Upper West Side, Greenwich Village, Brooklyn, like they're just in the same with L.A. Like, I'll never forget a friend saying, well, there's all these neighborhoods and you're not stuck in traffic because you figure out a way to live and work in your neighborhood. And that they're very distinct neighborhoods and that emphasis on multiculturalism, I think, and this like pluralism to enormous commercial success in both cities, right, allows people the space to both maintain that history, maintain that culture in this bigger sort of ecosystem? You know, I I think uh, that what we're experiencing here in New York City and New York State is the widening of the tent that is the Democratic Mm. Party and people on the left uh, bringing up issues that have been buried for years, quite literally. And so we see that um, I was just at Lincoln Center, which is, you know, the beacon of culture here in New York City and in my district. And Lincoln Center was created because um, a neighborhood called San Juan Hill, which was full of Latinos, was bulldozed to create. The West Side Story. Exactly. Exactly. And now the narrative is we have to unearth the history of the West Side, even though it's only been, I don't know, 50 years or something like that. Um, It was Eisenhower actually who um, put in the first uh, shovel that we need to recognize where we came from and exposing Mm. once again, our multicultural history. Because right now Manhattan is very white. It used to be a much more uh, Mm. integrated kind of uh, borough, but for a variety of reasons, it's it's becoming, you know, very wealthy again, very wealthy and white. And so, but our history indicates otherwise. And um, whether it's mm. from the, um, you know, Indian American tribes that were here in Manhattan and the rest of the city. So um, I think that's part of what is going on right here in our city is recognizing that uh, we do have a wonderful history of diversity and uh, being proud of that, um, celebrating it, but showing the rest of the world that that's what New York City, New York State came from. Libby, do you feel like Los Angeles is doing that dance too, that balance between gentrification and, you know, growing wealth and increased wealth and how do we, how do we stay true to our history and our cultures in these neighborhoods But also, listen, I mean, I think it is, I'm not saying anything controversial. Both cities have a value, have a strong emphasis on, you know, commercial success and business growth and entrepreneurship. And so it's like, how do you balance those two things if we're, you know, we're pluralistic and we we find success, commercial and otherwise, in allowing these cultures, but also, you know, not 
crushing them or co-opting them, but allowing them to thrive? Right? How do you feel like L.A. walks that line? Yeah, it, it's difficult, you know, because it is both the blessing and the curse of being part of a magnet, you know, being a New York, being a Los Angeles, is that everybody wants to be here. And, and when you want to be here, you know, the folks who have the means and the resources typically sort of have an opportunity more so than folks that maybe were already there and established. And you see that playing out. I mean, mm. you have, you know, it used to be in the good old days that the east side of Los Angeles was heavily Latino, Mexican-American initially. But now you've got, you know, sort of the folks who couldn't afford Hollywood Hills move a little bit further. And now they're, you know, in Eagle Rock and on the east side of Los Angeles. And, and it's not necessarily sort of the descendants of some of the folks who were there first. Is that a bad thing? You know, it, it, it's not a bad thing because it speaks to the success of Los Angeles. But when you start displacing folks or sort of changing the culture too rapidly, there's a tension. And it's beginning to manifest itself in some really interesting ways amongst Democrats, which to me, I don't know if this is an mm. issue in, on, on the East Coast or in New York, but you know, it used to be that if you were a Democrat, you believed in equity and access. Well, folks have really moved further left of that. And now you've got a real big movement mm. of the democratic socialist sort of agenda, which is very different than equity and access. It's about free. And it's about, in some cases, it, as we saw in the Los Angeles City Council election, this uh, primary, an abolitionist to the police department getting elected for the first time to the city council. So wow. but that comes out of sort of that frustration of how things are changing and the gentrification. And it happens to all be sort of playing out on the east side of Los Angeles right now. But, you know, it's both the blessing and the curse. I mean, you know, without that, we would have sort of stagnation and we wouldn't be that beacon that Los Angeles wants to be. Are you seeing that where you are, Assemblywoman, that that you spoke about the expansion of the tent? I'm wondering if those comments connect with you. I do, but I think that's more concentrated on New York City, um, not New York State. And mm -hmm. and we saw mm -hmm. that just yesterday or just on June 28th, the primary, where we had a Working Families Party slash DSA candidates running for governor and lieutenant governor, and yeah. they lost. They lost decisively. Um, and so the statewide, the more mainstream uh, kind of Democrat mm -hmm. won the primary as expected. Um, but in the city, there is there is certainly a, a city council that has elected more DSA than ever before. The, the fight about defund the police, does that mean literally get rid of the police or just, you know, make sure their budgets are um, are are not over over what they should get? Um, but competent mm -hmm. and, and enough to make sure that they can do their job, but not be racist, for example, and, uh, yeah. you know, et cetera. So um, although the mayor that we have is a moderate. So I think yeah. every every group is fighting for um, who's the who's the top dog, as it were. And that will continue to play out. I think that happens throughout history. Um, but, you know, people want to believe in their government. And I feel like right now that's teetering. We certainly don't believe in the Supreme mm. Court these days. Um, yeah, I think everybody has to make sure that their constituency is uh, is satisfied. And and we need to as government officials, at least I feel we need to deliver the services for them. Everyone can feel safe. Everyone can feel that. Uh, listened to, heard, and taken care of. 
And that's very, very difficult these days, even though it's a simple sounding task. I think it's really Mm -hmm. helpful to hear you both talk about this as a negotiation and how you are trying to work out how to be fair and and just among all these constituencies, because, you know, sitting in Kentucky so often writers, thinkers, politicians here will co-opt the language coming out of New York and L.A., the most extreme of that language, to hold it up as a representative of what all Democrats think. And I remember being in a a home in Washington, D.C. and talking to a minister who who was telling us about the city and his perspective. And he said, Washington, D.C. is a city of pornographic wealth and abject poverty. And the, the more we talked about it, the more I thought, you know, we just we have income inequality in Kentucky, but nothing like this. We have no idea how extreme the constituencies are in both directions because we don't have the commercial success and the history of commercial success of these cities. And so I I think it's just really valuable to hear you describe the way you're working through all these constituencies as unique local issues. I haven't heard either of you say anything about national politics beyond the Supreme Court yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just that really jumps out at me. You know, I think part of it is that, you know, you're talking about two really big states and two really big cities. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can you best believe that folks are hopping mad in California right now. We've had, you know, num- a number of protests. There are efforts. In fact, our governor just uh, entered into a commitment with Oregon and Washington on re- reproductive access and rights for women. There was uh, we're putting on a constitutional amendment in California to make sure that it's a right, the access in our constitution. It's enshrined in California. So, you know, the the good news is that you've got a really active constituency in the state and in in Los Angeles. But to your point, uh, Beth, it is messy. uh, This conversation on sort of, you know, equity and, and how it is that it manifests itself in politics. And it's playing out between Democrats in California. But the good news is that I think the net result will be you know, a stronger, more cohesive uh, party eventually. But we're in an interesting time, I think, as Democrats in, in California, for sure. You know, I think I think women in particular, obviously in New York, are just outraged uh, about the recent decisions. And the fact is, in 1970, New York State allowed legal abortions. So we, we are ahead mm. of our time. Um, and we recently passed five new laws that protect uh, medical providers. I, I sponsored two of those um, that protect against extradition. Um, we passed uh, some good gun legislation and we're actually getting called into an extraordinary session in Albany um, to further uh, protect our residents here in the state um, when it comes to where someone can get a gun or use or carry a gun since the Supreme Court struck down New York's law about limiting where um, guns can be carried outside of the home. So, um, but, I, but I do see the, um, the friction and the problem with housing inequality here in New York City is it's out of control. You have people spending $100 million for an apartment they might live in five nights a a year and downstairs on the street literally in front of the entrance of that building are people who are homeless and i know the same thing is true in california for sure and we have yet to figure out how to fix that 
uh, inequity um, that that we allow people to sleep on the ground and do not provide them with housing. Even though in New York City, people who are unsheltered must have a place to stay in every night. But this is something wow. that I think it's uh, certainly a nationwide phenomenon about the, the poor and the rich and what, what are we doing to take care of our I think that that issue is both the most intensely felt on the ground in these cities and also the most manipulated in the national media for sort of talking points. So what do you think people miss, you know, when they're talking about California housing prices or rents in New York? What's what's getting missed when that rises to the level of the national narrative? You know, it, what, what, what is tough about it is, you know, is not sort of addressing sort of the successes. There's, it's, it's simple economics, right? It's, it's supply and demand and folks want to be here, right? Whether, and despite sort of the rhetoric that you hear from some of our neighboring states and sort of why Calif there's this exodus from California, the simple truth is that folks in industry, there's success here. And as a result of that, you know, that is constraining uh, sort of the supply of housing. And then right now, these terrible economic times that we find ourselves in with inflation, uh, the COVID hangover that we've got with the supply chain being disrupted, it's not helping very much. And, and it's not for the sake of policymakers not trying to help and, and address the solution. A subsidized unit of housing right now, rental housing, uh, is half a million dollars. I mean, think about that for a second, what you could do with that half a million dollars outside of California. Um, but even so, we're behind the curve in our housing production. So, you know, it's easy to sort of point to the deficiencies, a little tougher to sort of sing the praises of why it is that this state is so successful and, and some of the consequences. And so there's certainly a lot that can be done from a policy perspective to afford more housing stock and, and access to it. And policymakers are trying their best. They're in session now, you know, debating bills literally that I was monitoring just a little bit ago on sort of how to bring down the costs. But, you know, it's, it speaks to the success. But, you know, we talk about the warts before we talk about the beauty sometimes. But I would say here in New York, real estate is king. Real estate runs the show, runs the town. And to the detriment often of the people who, who live here and are struggling to live here. So many of our renters yeah. are rent burdened, meaning they pay more than 30% of their income on rent. And we had this uh, tax giveaway program called 421A was the, the section uh, of law. And developers would get tax breaks for 30 years, 40 years, if they built a small number of affordable units. And what we found is that we have foregone as a city billions of dollars, billions upon billions of dollars. Um, and in return, we have not gotten enough affordable housing. And so that program has expired. Uh, we as legislature did not allow a new one to be um, put into the budget the way the governor wanted, uh, because we can't throw away money like that anymore. And I think real estate is starting, is starting to learn that, um, that the legislature, which is more, more uh, Democrats uh, leaning more left these days, that we're not prepared to play that game anymore. We really need um, 
development of affordable housing and supportive housing without giving away the store. And that is the challenge that is before us. As we walk down the street and see homeless families pitching, pitching makeshift tents because there's nowhere for them to live. Well, it is very helpful to hear your perspective on this and to get your expertise and a real gift for you two to share your time with us. So thank you so much. And we will be sure to put information on how listeners can stay in touch with both of you in our show notes. Thank you for having us. Assembly member, very nice having you. <laughs> nice talking yeah. to you. Nice, nice meeting you as well. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash pantsuit. Thank you so much to them for that great conversation. And now we're going to share another conversation we recently had with Ian Crone. We know so many of you are fans of the Typology podcast. He is also the best-selling author of The Road Back to You and now has the greatly anticipated follow-up, The Story of You, out. And it asks the hard questions, are you living in the wrong story? And he challenges readers to rethink still stories and outdated messages often learned in childhood and with the use of the Enneagram, unlock the inner power for both spiritual and personal growth and helped us use the Enneagram to unlock some insights around our political identities and political conversations. We talk about the Enneagram all the time on Pantsuit Politics, but for those uninitiated, I don't know how they, they would be, but in case they are in our audience, what is the Enneagram and why is this ancient typing system so popular right now? Sure. Well, the Enneagram is an ancient personality typing system. It teaches there are nine basic personality styles in the world, one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood as a way to cope, to feel safe, to navigate the new world of relationships. Each type has a unconscious motivation that powerfully influences how that personality type predictably and habitually acts, thinks, and feels from moment to moment on a daily basis. Why is it so important? Gosh, don't you think everybody wants to know what makes them and other people tick? Uh, I think the biggest mystery each of us has to face on a daily basis is ourselves. Mm. And which of us doesn't want to have a, a, a higher resolution picture of our interior world? Well, in your book, The Story of You, An Enneagram Journey to Becoming Your Truth Self, you talk about how we we tend to adopt this story about ourselves in childhood and carry it into adulthood. And the Enneagram gives us the potential to transform that story from one that is harmful to us to one that is helpful to us. That seems relevant to politics. Mm -hmm. And we would love to hear how you see those stories impacting the way we, we tend to think our political opinions and choices are just very rational calculations based on policy, but perhaps might have other factors going on. Oh, my gosh. There was a study done not very long ago. Uh, it was based on another personality typing system called the Big Five. Mm. And um, what they discovered is, is that our political leanings are not entirely based on opinion uh, as much as on temperament and disposition and personality, which is really interesting to me. Um, so for example, uh, if you're typically, now of course there are, these are large generalizations with tons of exceptions to the rule, but the numbers that tend to be more conscientious types often skew more conservative. And other types that tend to have what we call um, high openness to experience. Mm. Um, 
they they trend more liberal in their worldview. And so what people don't understand is they think, oh, it's a completely rational decision the way, the way I make po- political choices. It's like, actually, there are unconscious forces that work in the shadows that powerfully shape our political viewpoints. You know, I'm a both and thinker. I'm a four on the Enneagram. Uh, my son is a seven. He's a both and thinker. My daughter is an eight. She tends to be an either or thinker, although not as nearly as much as she did as she, as she when she was a younger woman. And, you know, I'm a four, right? So I tend to trend more liberal. I mean, I just know that part of that is my temperament. It's my disposition. Mm. It's how I it's in art. I tend to be a. I'm much, very much a both and thinker. Uh, as a writer, as a thinker, um, and you know, um, I have other people in the family who trend conservative, and they really tend to be conscientious types, like ones, twos, uh, sometimes uh, sixes. Not the counterphobic, but the phobic six. You know, again, that's the self knowledge, right? Mm. If you have the self knowledge, you know, you can. Uh, begin to, uh, you know, in a conversation with somebody who takes a different viewpoint, stand back from your experience, observe what's happening inside. You feel the anger, the frustration coming up and you're like, huh, is that helpful? Hmm. (laughs) You know, feels so good though. Oh yeah. I think something else that Enneagram has helped me with politically is um, learning not to make a lot of assumptions about other people. You know, when you start to find how rich the Enneagram is as a tool for self-understanding and and transformation, my instinct anyway is to kind of look at all the people around me and be like, oh, you (laughs) are a seven and that's what's going on here. And the more deeply you explore the Enneagram, the more you realize I can't really know that. Uh, I can't know whether that's a a seven or not. I can just observe the behavior and I need to let this person uh, tell me their own story and kind of live in their own story. And I I am trying to take that framework into political discussions as well and to not just say, oh, you are a Democrat or a Republican or from Georgia or or whatever, but but to uh, to realize there's there's a lot that I cannot unravel from the outside of a person. Yes, that's uh, that's absolutely true, because. People are um, wildly complex. We have to remember that people have trauma. People have all kinds of other forces in their life that shape their worldview, that actually craft the narrative that they inhabit, right? And they're, most, the vast majority of people, unless they've done some work, are utterly unaware of how these things are affecting the way they see the world. Here's something that most people, this is a great error, Most people think they know themselves and are in much more control of their lives than they Mm -hmm. actually are. And uh, until you begin to do the work, um, you know, you you just sort of live in this sort of bubble uh, of delusion (laughs) about how much, how in charge you are of the things you act, the way that you act, think, and feel. That's why I find your new book really empowering and helpful because it is difficult to truly comprehend how powerful those childhood narratives are and how deeply embedded they are. And I'm wondering like how you started down this road, 
how you you went from a tool that that can help us so much in the present to using it to excavate the past. Yeah, and and chart a course for the future. So, gosh, years ago, I for your listeners who probably don't know, I I'm in recovery for alcohol and drug addiction. I've been a twelve step community for decades. That you know are uh, my I call them my litter mates, uh, people who are trying to figure out uh, how to, how to live in the world with a new spiritual design for living, right? And um, when I was very early in sobriety, I mean, like you know, straight out of treatment, I I had this sponsor, and he was a seventy year old Episcopal priest, Jungian analyst, <laughs> super super smart. And I told my story one night at a meeting. I had like half an hour to tell my story. And it was just full of all kinds of Enneagram 4 stuff. I didn't even know the Enneagram then. But I remember it. It was like, oh, you know, all my life I felt different. And all my life I felt like I was an isle of misfit toys inhabited. You know what I mean? And it was just full of this angst, existential drama, and uh, which is all very typical for kind of territory and at the end of it he was i drove him home and he looked at me at one point and he said ian um what if the story you tell yourself about who you are isn't true mm. like what if the story you tell others about who you are and how you see the world is not true right it's like and i was like thrown back on my heels i was like wait a minute i just thought the story i understand my life to be was handed to me. And I, you know, and it's like, I don't have any choices. And he made me realize in that moment, wait a second, all of us occupy a story. And for the most part, the story we come up with as little kids isn't true anymore in adulthood. Mm. And unless we rewrite that story, craft a new narrative of our own design, we are stuck in a prison we don't know we're in. Mm. And, uh, you know, those are very secure prisons, the ones you don't know you're in. I notice in my own life, much of what I learned in therapy that has been so helpful to me, um, a, a lot of what I have read that has really influenced the way that I think, I'm thinking of Brene Brown's work, for example, comes out of the recovery community. Mm. And I wonder how you see a connection between th- those tenets that that you start to explore in the recovery community and the Enneagram. Because sometimes I think to myself, is there a way to access this wisdom without going through the suffering mm. uh, first? <laughs> and is, is that what the Enneagram is here to help us with? How do we do that? Well, I will say this. Suffering is a great motivator. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, do the work or die. I mean, that's, you know, it's, and that's sort of a message you learn early in recovery. It's like, well, we're going to give you some suggestions as to how you might live your life. Uh, and you're, you're free to choose whether to accept those suggestions or not. But if you choose not to, uh, the result is death, you know? <laughs> so, you know, those are pretty good. And those are pretty motivating words. Right. Uh, and it's true. There is such a wealth of knowledge in the 12-step world for everybody. It's, you know, it's amazing to me. You know, sometimes I'll be out and someone will go, 
they'll learn that I'm a recovering addict alcoholic. And they'll be like, oh, I'll pray for you. Let's say they're a person of faith, right? And I'll be like, no, I'm going to pray for you. Because if you think you're not an addict, then you're batty. Everybody is a seething cauldron of addictions. The benefit <laughs> of being an alcoholic or a drug addict is eventually your addiction goes public, right? <laughs> and, and you have no choice but to deal with it. A lot of most people have addictions to whether it's work or to approval or to being right or mm. whatever it might be. Uh, and those addictions, even, you know, let's think about, you know, an addiction to success and money and material goods. You know, people actually applaud those addictions and yet they make people miserable mm. ultimately uh, and causes can cause as much damage to your health and to your relationships as a good old drinking or drug problem, really. Mm. I mean, so I guess the point I'm making is I think the, what the Enneagram does as it blends with 12-step wisdom is it, it helps us to come face-to-face -face with the truth about who we are and who we aren't. We have opportunities for growth and transformation that um, are before us if we, if we choose to take advantage of them. Um, one of the things I tell people all the time is if you're looking for flattery, don't play around with the Enneagram. Mm. Like, you know, go take strengths finders. I mean, you know what I mean? It's <laughs> like, you know, if you want someone to pat you on the back, I mean, I like strengths finders. I'm just saying, I just, you know, it's got a, it's got a point, but I want to know not only what's great about me. I also want to know like what's holding me back from becoming mm -hmm. the highest expression of myself. I wonder, as you look at America and American politics, what you think we're addicted to being right. Mm. I think that's, uh, and you know, we're, we're addicted to rage. Yeah. Um, you know, rage is powerful. Let's face it, getting angry. There's a side to it. That's just delicious. Oh yeah. It feels it, great. I love it. Oh, it self-righteousness so is my favorite emotion, right? It's like mm, yummy. You know, I just, I love to be right. And, and of course we all know that it might feel, it's like a little bit like a drug, right? It might feel good, but it's killing you. You know, mm. it, it's, it's corrosive uh, to your relationships and to your own heart, you know, mm. to your own heart. And it doesn't contribute to the well-being of the world. It just doesn't. You know, there was a time, I think, when people didn't confuse their identity with their politics. Mm. Um, in other words, you know, like, for example, my mom was kind of a kind of a liberal and my dad was a bill buckley conservative right you know we, i grew up in new england and every you know as you can imagine bill buckley conservative versus a, you know my mom voted for you know hillary clinton my dad would definitely not have done that you know um and yet they didn't have any problems in their marriage around politics because those were opinions they didn't, they were separate from their identity. It was like, I'm Ian Cron, and I happen to have this political world of view or opinion, but they weren't. Nowadays, if you disagree with someone's politics, it's as though it feels like an attack, an attack on your identity, mm -hmm. on your very person. And if, if this, that makes the stakes super high. And, you know, uh, I, I also think that the whole, mix of politics and religion, nationalism and religion is super dangerous. 
we all know what theocracies look like. Mm. And it, you know, sometimes I worry that there's a lot of, there are some people in our midst who would like to create another one, you know, and, you know, which is why you should never introduce religion into politics. They don't mix because religion is a, doesn't operate in the sphere of compromise. And when you put politics and religion together, religion always ends up bullied. Mm. Well, I mean, I think that that's all true and powerful. And I think that's why individually acts of self-discovery and self-awareness feel like political acts in today's day and age. I think, you know, being able to use the tools available to you and, and with guidance from people like you in your work, it matters. I really think it matters. The more self-awareness we can bring, the more we can use these tools in our own lives to loosen that grip on anger and righteousness. It's like I said, I think it's like a truly a political act. So thank you. Thank you for your books and your work on the Enneagram. I know they've helped us and a lot of other people and, and thanks for coming on our show. Man, what a delight. Thanks for having me. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. 
their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. Thank you to Ian Felipe and Assemblywoman Rosenthal for joining us. Thank you to all of you for tuning in to Pantsuit Politics week after week. We will be off next week, but then we'll be joining you, dependent again, on the schedule of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attacks on the United States Capitol. We hope all of you have the best July available to you. And until we join you again, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. The Pestons! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Catherine Vollmer. Amy Whited, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Ashley Thompson, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.